I got an email this uh, past week that was making fun of bumper sticker Christianity, which a lot of times does need to be made uh, fun of. And in the process, it illustrates, I think, a faulty view of persecution. Now, you may cringe even with this edited down version, uh, but I really think it illustrates the way many unbelievers uh, view Christianity. <clears throat> email went like this. The other day I went to the local religious bookstore where I saw a hunk, if you love Jesus, bumper sticker. I bought one and put it on my car, and I'm really glad that I did. What an uplifting experience followed. I was stopped at the light at a busy intersection, lost in thought, thinking about the Lord. Didn't even notice that the light had turned green. Bumper sticker really worked. I found lots of people who really love Jesus. Guy behind me started honking like crazy. He must really love Jesus because he leaned out of his car and yelled his name as loud as he could. Soon everybody started honking, so I leaned out my window, waved, and smiled at all these loving people. Must have been a man from Florida because I could hear him yelling something about the sunny beach, and he was saying it in a funny way, waving at me with one finger. Someone had once told me this was a Hawaiian good luck sign, so I waved the sign back at him. A couple of people were so caught up in the joy of the moment that they got out of their cars and started towards me. I guess they wanted to join me in prayer, but just then the light turned yellow and I stepped on the gas. Good thing I did too, because I was the only one to get across the intersection. I looked back at them standing there and gave them a great big smile, held up the Hawaiian good luck sign, and praised the Lord for such wonderful folks. <laughs> I give that to illustrate that people being upset with Christianity does not always mean that they're offended with the gospel or with the cross. Uh, many times it's the way we act and uh, react to them. I uh, spent a number of years working with a man in, up in Canada who kept claiming he was being persecuted for being a Christian, and I really felt all along that he was being rejected because he was acting like such a jerk uh, with the people that he was around. And this chapter illustrates different reasons for why people receive persecution. And I want to back up to verse 14. We really weren't dealing with persecution when we looked at that um, particular verse and illustrate how in this verse, and there are other uh, examples that are given as well, there was persecution brought against the whole church of God because of the sinful attitudes of a few. It says there, "...in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south." And certain violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Now these, uh, these sword toten uh, 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 people back then were doing what they were doing in the name of the Lord. They thought they were serving the Lord, and yet they were working contrary to God's purposes, and they were a very bad testimony uh, to the pagans who were around them. And even though they were a minority, because of their high profile, there were a lot of people who interpreted all Israel in the light of these few. What does the world think of the church today? I think if a lot of people were to judge Christianity based on what they saw on the TV, uh, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Uh, if people judged Christianity based on the publicity given to uh, Pastor Jimmy Creech or even better people like uh, Jimmy Swaggart, a lot of times I think the church would be in trouble. Uh, there's not a lot we can do about um, uh, some of the uh, people like down in Texas who in the name of Christ uh, are involved in some strange paramilitary type uh, activities, but we can make sure that our testimony is the best that we can make it. Uh, we can't do a lot about Christians in the past who have given a reputation uh, for Christians being, uh, you know, uh, very cheapskate tippers. 
But if we're going to lay a track down, you know, on a table in a restaurant, we need to make sure that we are generous when we do that. Uh, we can't do a whole lot about what other Christians have um, maybe rudely treated some store clerk, but we need to, on our part, make sure that we are godly testimonies in how we interact with and how we treat uh, other people. First Peter says, if we're going to be persecuted, let's make sure we're being persecuted for the right reasons, not because we've got bad attitudes. In 1 Timothy 3.7, he says, he must have a good reputation among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. When we're arrogant and rude in the way in which we promote the cause of Christ, the persecution that we get may not have anything to do with the offense of the gospel and may have everything to do with our bad attitudes. But sometimes the persecution we receive is something that is unavoidable. Uh, verse 22 is where the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes began to heat up. And uh, in this particular example, it was because there was a conflict of ideologies. It was the prince of the covenant there was Ananias the high priest, and he was a very principled man, a godly man, who was able to compromise a little bit on things that were not scriptural absolutes, but he could only go so far. He was not able to compromise like Jason and Menelaus uh, uh, were, were able to, and consequently, there was a, uh, a conflict. He was deposed and eventually killed for his principal stands. I think this was why Bonhoeffer was executed by Hitler. I think this was why Stalin was so opposed to many of the evangelicals. And if you look at the history in uh, Uganda, why the bloodbath in Uganda came about under Idi Amin. There was such a stark contrast between the world and life views of the Christians and the pagan world and life view of Idi Amin. And uh, I don't think there can be any question about the fact that in America, uh, our nation is imbibing and embracing um, ideologies that are coming more and more in conflict with Christianity. What we're going to be seeing is that uh, America really has fertile soil to enable the potential for persecution to happen down the road. And... Uh, uh, the more of these that are in place, I think the more likely that persecution uh, will be present. Another reason for persecution in this chapter was envy. Envy and greed. And one of the reasons why Ananias was able to be deposed here was because of the envy and the greed of his brother uh, Menelaus, <clears throat> who uh, betrayed him to Antiochus. If you read through First and Second Maccabees, which gives a history of this time period, you'll see that there was a lot of envy uh, and, and greed amongst the Jews that Antiochus was able to take advantage of as he played one party against another party. And I think this was something that was key in many countries uh, 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 where persecution occurred. It was certainly true in the French Revolution. Uh, it was true in, uh, in, in Russia where because of envy, many times people would betray others uh, to the state. Uh, when the some of the... Uh, secret archives were uncovered in, in East Germany. There were a lot of surprises as to who had betrayed who uh, before the secret police there. And many times, envy was at the root of all of that. In verse 24, that's what Antiochus was taking advantage of. With all of his plunder, all of his wealth, he was rewarding certain people who would cooperate with him and using them to betray others through that money. And I think there's a parallel in America. Several economists have described America as being a culture of envy, a culture of resentment. 
And to the degree, historically, to the degree that a, a country becomes characterized by envy, I think to that degree there is soil that is prepared and ready and ripe for persecution to come about. And those of you who are preparing for Y2K, I think, need to keep that in mind. Uh, some people have to have a high profile, you know, if they're educating others, if they're writing, if they're speaking about this, but not everybody needs to be in that, uh, in that particular kind of a, of a camp. When you look at the conflict between the, the Hutus and the Tutsis, where the Tutsis were just massacred in Rwanda, envy was many times a key factor in that. And uh, that's not something we can do anything about out there, but we need to recognize America does have soil where the seeds of persecution could blossom in the future. Just as one uh, perhaps innocent example could illustrate, there have been two major week-long uh, training seminars by the American Bar Association teaching people specifically how to penetrate the corporate uh, veil of the church and go after what they called the last deep pockets. Uh, envy in our, in our country could very easily lead to persecution. Verse 24 and actually the whole chapter shows another factor, and it's the drive towards centralization in the government uh, that was uh, key in leading to persecution. Historically, anyway, you look at various nations, the greater the drive towards centralization, the greater the need to resist anything that will oppose that centralization. That's what was happening with the Jews. Uh, one of the things that really offended Antiochus about Israel was that the Jews of Israel had a loyalty that transcended loyalty to the empire. I mean, think about it. Jews anywhere in the empire were loyal to Jerusalem. They, they not only prayed for Jerusalem, twice a year they made pilgrimage there, gave gifts to Jerusalem, they tithed to Jerusalem. Anytime there was a, a discipline case, uh, in fact, uh, anytime there was a, a civil court case, the final court of appeals was where? It was in Jerusalem. And this went against every intuition of the emperors that persecuted the Jews back then. Because what? It, it hindered their drive towards centralization. I don't think there can be any question about the fact that in the last hundred years, there has been more and more centralization of power in Washington, D.C. And even in the United Nations, I think this is true. In the last few years, uh, there has been more and more power given to that organization uh, uh, in world affairs. I don't think it's by accident that the United Nations has sponsored several summits on unity amongst religions. Unity amongst religions. It wouldn't surprise me if at some point uh, there is a one-world government uh, trying to impose a uh, one-world religion. Antiochus was certainly bent in, in trying to force syncretism in the empire because it helped him in terms of the centralization of his uh, country. Now, if you're wondering if our country is sliding into a potential persecution in the future, just see how many of these things apply. I really think all of these things apply. And it doesn't guarantee any persecution is going to come, but it certainly shows that we are not exempt from it. Uh, it could certainly arise. A fifth issue that led to persecution, and this is where we ended up last uh, time we looked at this. We finished with verse 27, but if you look at verse 28, it, it talks about obstructionism. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. Now, we're not told here why the damage was done, but if you trace through in terms of the history, this particular occurrence, um, uh, that's exactly what the situation was. It was obstructionism. You would think Antiochus would have been thrilled. Here he was bringing fabulous wealth back from Egypt, and you'd think it'd be a time to celebrate. 
But he finds out that his policies under Menelaus, the, the high priest he had put over Israel, were not working out. Uh, what he had done is he had put an evil man as a high priest over the temple, and uh, the Jews began voting with their feet. They decided if they're going to have this kind of an evil guy over this temple. We're not even going to go to the temple. Uh, we're not going to tithe to the temple. In fact, uh, when they heard rumors that Antiochus had died, which was a false rumors, they started the movement to try to get him voted out of that office. And uh, even though this was just a minor annoyance on the part of Antiochus, it infuriated him, just infuriated him. And so he tried to teach them a lesson. He slaughtered 80,000 men, women, and children. He looted the temple, and he went back to Syria. Now, we might think there's really not a parallel in America on this. Uh, the kind of obstruction that we bring to humanism seems to be so scattered and so haphazard. And yet, you read on the Internet... Uh, the, the page from the American Humanist Association, or you read uh, the page from the uh, Teachers Union, the National Teachers Union, uh, or uh, some of the homosexual organizations. There's a number of pages out there indicating that these people believe there is a unified uh, attempt by, by Christianity to bring back some of, the, some of the Christian foundations that we've had in the past. And they have indicated with uh, Dobson and D. James Kennedy and other reform ministries uh, they've indicated this is a threat that cannot be tolerated any longer, that the government needs to do something about it and step down on that. I think we have fertile soil for persecution, and we need to make sure we are not taken unawares. Uh, I think the potential is there even in the, in, in the year 2000, whether it's a real or whether it's a perceived uh, threat of, of problems, anarchy being around, uh, for a national state of emergency to be declared. Uh, where we have an indefinite postponement of elections and we have uh, very repressive measures being brought about, uh, even more centralized government. It's possible. I'm not predicting it's going to happen, but I'm, what I'm saying is the things that are necessary to enable that to happen is present. We need to be prepared and praying about persecution in the future. Verses 29 through 30 indicate another reason why he heated up his persecution. Uh, at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. Now history fills in the details of what went on there. Uh, uh, it was one year later, after verse uh, 28, it was in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes made another attempt to conquer the whole of Egypt. And he was not successful because what happened is they were coming to Alexandria to besiege it. Unbeknownst to them, the Ptolemies had petitioned Rome to come and protect them. And so uh, the Roman commander, uh, Gaius Papilius Leonis, uh, met Antiochus four miles outside of Alexandria, handed him a letter from the Roman Senate and said, get out of Egypt or you're going to have war with Rome. Um, and uh, Antiochus says, well, give me a little bit of time to think about it. And what the, the commander did is he got a stick and he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and he says, before you leave that circle, you make your decision. And uh, he knew the power of Rome. He stood there silent for a period of time and he finally had to agree. And he left in utter, utter humiliation. These ships from Cyprus that it mentions here was that Roman um, uh, a fleet of ships that had totally embarrassed him. Now, what happens is Antiochus turned his humiliation and his anger against the Jews. And some persecutions have come because a leader needed a scapegoat uh, to take out 
his frustrations on. Or they needed to demonize Christians because uh, they needed to take the pressure of a public attention off of themselves onto something else, maybe some common enemy that was there. Do we have situations of frustration and humiliation in high places today? Nothing may come out of it. But yes, we have the soil in which persecution could arise. Verse 30 makes it very clear it was because he was grieved with Rome that he brought the persecution against the Jews. The final, and I think it's the most important reason for persecution, is that the humanists begin to become more and more aware of and frustrated with the exclusivism of Christianity, the exclusivism of uh, the, 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 the true faith that the Jews held to in the Old Testament. Look at the second sentence in verse 30. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the covenant. Uh, he was deliberately rewarding those who, like Jason and Menelaus and other men like those, who were compromising and who were willing to go along with his Hellenizing policies. And then he systematically began to destroy everything about the Jewish faith that he could, that he saw as being a demarcation between the Greek religion and the Jewish religion. And so uh, it goes on to say, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. The way that they did that is Antiochus offered a, a pig, a sow, on the altar as a sacrifice, and in other ways he deliberately defiled the holy place, and he commanded that they no longer offer any things that were distinctively biblical. They had to offer sacrifices simply to the Greek religion. And so it goes on to say, they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. That abomination of desolation was the, uh, the altar to Zeus that was placed there in place of the brazen altar, and uh, they uh, commanded the people to uh, worship that idol. Now, some obeyed, some compromised, uh, others refused to and, and, were, and were destroyed. But verse 32 goes on. It says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. It was really a horrible time, horrible time of persecution. Circumcision was um, uh, forbidden. Uh, there are many examples of women along with their babies that were slaughtered because they had circumcised their kids. Now you might wonder, why would he care about that? Well, it was the mark of God upon those people to indicate that they were different. They were different. God was exclusive in his relationship to those who were, who were his covenant people. Uh, he deliberately tried to make people violate the Sabbath. Um, he um, tore up the scriptures. Uh, forced people to eat unclean foods. In many different ways, he sought to attack the true faith. And it was a very discouraging time for people. And yet, in hindsight, it can be encouraging because we can realize that against all odds, God is with his people. He can make them win. You know, in the American War for Independence, it was apparently only about 4% of the population who fought in the army. And it was a tiny minority like that that fought here with the Maccabees. The Maccabees were rulers there uh, who gave a godly revolt, and there was wonderful things that God did with, uh, with them against all odds over and over again. They won against the Syrian uh, forces. And um, we'll maybe look at that a, a little bit. But before we get there, uh, let's look at God's purposes. We've seen Antiochus' purposes in bringing persecution. But verse 29 implies God was involved. It says, at the appointed time, 
he shall return at the appointed time. Antiochus could not bring this persecution one month earlier or one month later. It was appointed by God. The time was appointed. All of it was under his control. Now, that's a mystery to us. How in the world God can control a wicked man like Antiochus and use it for good purposes in the church, but that's exactly what he did. Now, the first good purpose is given in verse 32. It was dealing with these wicked men uh, that were in the church. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Eventually, God judged those people, but he purified the church as well. The second reason uh, is given in um, verse 35. Some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purge them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Uh, Antiochus was trying to annihilate the true faith, and God ironically twisted around, and he uses Antiochus to actually strengthen the true faith and to purify the true faith. <clears throat> and um, uh, the Lord many times has done this because he's more concerned about holiness in the church than he is about the comfort of the church. And I think that's an important principle to keep in mind. Far more uh, important to God is that the church become holy. Uh, there are many examples amongst the stories of the Maccabees where people recognize this. They, they realized that Israel was being disciplined by God. In fact, one of the Maccabees said that uh, it, it was a sign of comfort that God disciplined them before their cup of iniquity was full, unlike with the pagan nations, because he loved them. He was concerned for them. He was disciplining them. And uh, one way or another, I think we need to realize holiness is going to be produced in the church. It'll either be through revival, like at Pentecost, or it'll be through persecution. And I think this, is, this reason alone is reason to believe that we cannot have things going on for much longer the way they are in America with the corrupt church. There's either, either going to be revival or there's going to be persecution that the Lord's going to bring. And uh, while we should... Prepare for persecution, I think we should pray and hope that revival comes instead. But we are definitely right. Now let's look at some of the ways that the Jews prepared themselves for persecution. They were not passive. Uh, one of the things that they did was they instilled in their children and in their households a passion for integrity, an unwillingness to compromise. Onias was uncompromising. Um, the, uh, the, the sons of uh, Judas Maccabeus, uncompromising. And you look at many of the Israelites in that time, and you will see that for years they had been seeking to honor the Lord even in the small details of life. If you're a compromiser on the small issues right now, you're not going to have the resolve to stand up when the big issues come under persecution. Uh, we need to be learning even now what it means to stand for the Lord. A lot of the things that they were persecuted for were really uh, would have been seen, I think, by modern Christians as insignificant details. Now, some of them were big, you know, bowing down and worshiping uh, Zeus. But uh, there is a story of um, a mother with uh, seven of her sons, and all they had to do was eat some pork intestines uh, to, to show that they were willing to go along with the Hellenizing process. And a lot of people might think, you know, eating some pork, what, what's the big deal? It's better than suffering. But one by one, these sons were tortured for their faith. They were asked to renounce um, uh, their faith symbolically just by eating that pork. The last son uh, said that, uh, was offered actually riches uh, and, and to be a friend of Antiochus. He said he was unwilling to uh, violate his covenant with God in any particular detail. 
See, eating pork was not even a moral ceremony. It was a just a ceremonial law. It was not part of the moral law. And yet this man says, God commanded it, and I am not willing to disobey God in the slightest detail. Uh, we cannot do a whole lot about the church out there uh, being a compromised church, but we can make sure we don't compromise. We can make sure that our children are trained so that maybe they will be raised up at some point like the Maccabees were in standing for liberty. But uh, the second internal preparation was a personal walk with God. Verse 32 says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Notice that last clause. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, I wish I had the time to tell some of the interesting stories of the absolute heroism of some of the men and the women and the children during the time of the Maccabees. It makes very interesting reading. You can read it for yourself. The first and second Maccabees are not a part of Scripture, uh, but they're great, great history. And I think we ought to, to read them. Um, there were many of these people who knew God. They walked with God long before the, the persecution hit. And they were prepared because they had the presence of God in their lives. They'd already tasted of God's goodness. They'd tasted of the wisdom that he gives to his children. Uh, and, and we need to be prepared in that way. That, that one example that's from 2 Maccabees chapter 7 uh, of these, uh, these seven sons who were um, uh, actually tortured and then fried alive on this big uh, metal plate, each one of them testifying they would never trade the love that they have for God for anything that could be offered in the world. They said, God is with us now and he will be with us in the resurrection. Uh, he will be with us when we die. And they had that sense that God, God's presence would sustain them. If we do not know the power of Christ and his resurrection now, we're not going to have what it takes to sustain us in the day of testing. The third inward preparation that was made was the study of God's word. Verse 33 says, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. And I think this is always an important means of preparation because during times of preparation, uh, of persecution, it is amazing what kind of compromises people are willing to make uh, in order to avoid pain, in order to avoid um, uh, losing your loved ones or, 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 or death. And if you do not have something that is unbending, unyielding, a solid foundation like the Scriptures that's inerrant, it's infallible, you can, you can count on it at all times, it's going to be hard to have something by which you can judge your actions because you start compromising on the little areas before long, everything becomes fuzzy. And so we have got to instruct ourselves and instruct our children in the Word of God. In fact, our Scriptures could be taken away. We need to memorize the Word of God. Now, there have been many people in persecution who have been in uh, isolation who have said it was the memorized scriptures that they had that kept them from going crazy. Praying to the Lord and uh, thinking through and studying the scriptures that they had hidden in their hearts. We need to saturate ourselves in the Word of God. Now, what about you? How much of the Word of God have you memorized? And how much of the Word do you know how to apply given difficult circumstances that might arise? This is kind of a, a depressing passage, but if you look at the results of what they went through, I think they were far more glorious than 
what happened after the war for independence in America. And I think we'd all say it was worthwhile going through what our founding fathers went through. It was certainly dark period of time for the Maccabees, but the sacrifices were worthwhile. Many lessons I've overlooked um, just because of the time factor. If I was preaching to uh, some of the people who were our founding fathers, soldiers fighting in the war for independence, uh, there are several lessons that I think I would have applied to them. But if you can take home four things, uh, I think you will do well. The first is, I think we need to be seriously thinking about persecution. Because the soil is fertile for the seeds of persecution to begin to grow. I think we really need to begin preparing for that. And secondly, we need to prepare right now by resolving never to compromise in home, uh, in the church, at work, wherever we may be. Uh, the Maccabees were people like Daniel in Daniel 1. Right from a youth. He knew he could not compromise on anything that God's Word called him to do. Thirdly, we need to prepare by knowing God intimately. If we do not know God, uh, I, I would just, I'd be, I'd hate to face persecution without a sense of God's comfort, of His peace, of His presence, of His wisdom, all of the, the resources that we need. If you do not know God intimately, if you do not have a personal relationship with God, that must be developed because none of these things are automatically going to come when the persecution arrives. And fourthly, we need to prepare by memorizing and living out God's Word even now. Let's pray.